0: Let's, uh, let's begin. I'm uh, Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at Cato. Uh, we're here today to discuss uh, Deceit on the Road to War, Presidents, Politics, and American Democracy. Uh, that's what it looks like if you haven't bought your copy yet. Uh, and uh, the author, uh, John Schusler, is here to uh, talk about it a bit. Uh, John is uh, associate professor in the Department of Strategy at the Air War College. Uh, And we have, uh, I think, uh, two discussants uh, here who are uniquely uh, suited to, to discuss it, Elizabeth Saunders, on my right is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at George Washington. Uh, she's a, a, this year a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's the author of the award-winning uh, <laughs> Leaders at War, How Presidents Shape Military Interventions. And she's at work now uh, on a second book called The Insider's Game, Elites, Democracies, and War. Uh, and that, that book uh, comes at some of the same issues that John is talking about uh, from a somewhat different perspective, focusing on uh, elites, as the title suggests. Trevor Thrall, uh, on my left, is a senior fellow here at Cato and associate professor at George Mason University in the Department of Public and International Affairs. And he's the editor of uh, two books that, that uh, deal with uh, this subject of how presidents uh, discuss and lead us into war. One is uh, American foreign policy and the politics of fear, threat inflation since 9-11. Uh, and the other is uh, why did the United States invade Iraq? And those are both uh, co-edited with Jane uh, Kramer. Uh, the subject of the book in, is uh, is deceit and uh, how with the cases of World War II, Vietnam and Iraq, how presidents pushed or uh, deceived, uh, in some ways, the U.S. public to try to win support uh, for the war. And I think, in some ways, the larger subject, uh, both of the book and hopefully our discussion here today, is uh, marketplaces of ideas, democratic free marketplaces of ideas, and if they're real, uh, do they function? Is the United States making more intelligent decisions about its foreign policy endeavors, its wars, uh, as the framers of our Constitution uh, hoped we would because of our democratic system, because the citizens who suffer the costs of war uh, have skin in the game, as people say? Or uh, is there something about the United States, uh, its power, or it's uh, our system uh, that uh, causes, if not uh, unintelligent decisions, at least encourages, as John argues, um, some degree of uh, manipulation of the public or deceit, uh, maybe uh, we uh, actually have no particular advantages in our foreign policy from uh, being a democracy at all. And uh, that would be a depressing uh, conclusion, uh, particularly for those of us uh, who work at think tanks and, and need the free marketplace of ideas uh, the functions so that we can feel uh, that our endeavors matter. So uh, there's a lot to talk about here, uh, and uh, I will uh, turn uh, the mic over to John, who's going to talk a little longer, and then we'll have uh, the two commentators. Without further uh, comments from me, and then hopefully we'll get all of you involved somewhat.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks to all of you for coming today. It's an honor to be here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I want to specifically thank uh, Ben and Chris Preble uh, for bringing me in, um, and to uh, Trevor and Elizabeth for comments. Uh, As Ben alluded to, they've both done important work in this area of democracy and war, and so I'm I'm very fortunate to have their feedback today. Um, I'm going to start with uh, just a few words on the inspiration behind this book, which I think clarifies where I went with it. It started as as almost all first books do in our line of work as a dissertation at the University of Chicago. I was in graduate school in the early and mid 2000s, or that's when I was kind of forming my ideas for a project. And the two um, kind of formative experiences that really mattered during that period for me were first uh, 9 11 and then, especially, the Iraq War. Um, And so we were having weekly, daily discussions about. how do you get the Iraq war after 9-11, what is the connection, is there any, how is this war being sold? Is, and then uh, academically, um, a, a long-standing debate uh, that, that Ben has alluded to about the virtues or lack thereof of, of democracies in international affairs um, and specifically how exceptional are democracies um, in, their, in their conduct and the prevailing wisdom, I think still continues to be the prevailing wisdom, is that democracies are simply better than non-democracies when it comes to kind of the big decisions or the or the, or the big behaviors that matter in, in foreign affairs, when to go to war, when not to, um, when to cut losses, et cetera. And a lot of this boils down to a more specific set of arguments about institutional constraints, which... Um, it is a, a kind of set of terms that makes the eyes glaze over, but it basically uh, comes down to the fact that Democratic leaders are accountable in ways that non-Democratic leaders are not. They have to answer to the voters for their decisions, and they have to make arguments in public and persuade people, and those arguments can be vetted and challenged um, and rebutted if they're flimsy or deceptive. Or whatnot. And and an important implication of this is that democracies generally pursue more prudent and successful foreign policy than non democracies. Um, So, without kind of starting, uh, I didn't want to burn the whole house down and say that this is all wrong, but anyone kind of going through that period in the early 2000s where the Iraq War is front and center is going to have some questions about this idealized model of democracy in the democratic process and whether that accurately captures the way democracies actually make these big decisions. And um, I think both Trevor and Elizabeth and others have, uh, I think, usefully uh, challenged uh, the, the veracity of this model. My particular take on it was to look at what I saw is the political use of deception to overcome some of the institutional constraints that were normally discussed, the need to to generate public consent, the need to prevail in the marketplace of ideas. And I I do wanna say that when I talk about deception, I mean something very specific, uh, deliberate attempts on the part of leaders to mislead the public about the thrust of official thinking, in this case, about the decision to go to war as well as the reasons to go to war. Um, one thing that's gotten me in, in the trouble in the past is by deception the way I mean it is a broader concept than lying. Lying is actually fairly rare, at least in my you know my imprecise measurement and in, in, in the domain I study in that it's actually easy to catch bold-faced lies. Um, they can be fact-checked. But deception is harder to um, definitively rebut or to catch. It involves spinning. It involves concealment. um, It involves putting together facts in misleading ways, as opposed to just flat out um, misstating them. And so deception, I would argue, is more pervasive than lying. And and for that reason, I think, is more problematic. Um, The argument I make in the book is essentially that not not that deception is just something that leaders occasionally do that poses a problem for these big arguments about democracy and war, but that it's actually a natural outgrowth of the democratic process. That um, the very institutional constraints that that the scholarly wisdom has emphasized encourage leaders to mislead the public on these big decisions. and this is basically because elected leaders have good reasons to maximize domestic support for war. War is a costly, uh, high-stakes endeavor. It can redound to the disadvantage of leaders who get the country into losing or, or or misguided wars. And so, leaders want to go into a war with with as much domestic support <clears throat> as possible. This is actually all highlighted by the prevailing scholarly wisdom, where I think. Uh, the wisdom goes wrong is in missing the tools that leaders have at their disposal to kind of rig the process. Um, And basically the ones I emphasize are the ability of leaders to exploit information and propaganda advantages, to frame issues in misleading ways, to cherry-pick supporting evidence, to suppress damaging revelations and otherwise skew the public debate. And in particular, I talk about kind of two big kinds of deception in the book um, that are encouraged by two different scenarios. So the first scenario is a case where a leader, uh, for strategic reasons, feels war is necessary, but this war promises to be costly. Victory is uncertain. uh, It promises to be very contentious domestically. And here is where I argue leaders are going to resort to what I call blame shifting. And blame shifting is basically... Um, a set of tactics that's meant to do to, to shift blame for war onto the adversary, to basically say that it's not our side that wants war, the other side made us do it. Um, and so this is going to entail basically obscuring or concealing your own interest in war and uh, looking for pretexts um, that kind of shift blame to the other side. The second type of deception that I talk about in the book um, you're going to find more in environments where the domestic politics are less contentious. Um, war might be seen; war is seen as uh, cheap, quick victory is likely, victory more assured. And so leaders are going to not be dealing with much in the way of active, organized opposition to war, but more kind of a latent uneasiness that, hey, maybe this isn't necessary. If war is going to be so quick and easy, why are we, why are we fighting in the first place? <clears throat> and hence what you need to do if you're, if you're a shrewd leader is to oversell. That is to exaggerate the threat that you're dealing with um, to make war look necessary. And the key part here is that you can kind of, uh, if you're a leader, thread inflate away because the political opposition, those that would normally be calling you out for your misleading claims, are not going to have much of a political incentive to do that. They, their instinct is going to be to let's change the subject, get the quick and decisive victory over with, and get onto firmer terrain for us politically. And so really what leaders are taking advantage of is the fact that there might be a little bit of latent unease, but not much in the way of, of active opposition, and they just kind of need to uh, push the boulder a bit further up the hill. Okay, so those are the two big kinds of deception that I talk about in the book. What, How, do, how does this map onto the cases I look at? Uh, I look at three cases in, uh In an in-depth way, I ask a few questions of each case. When and why did leaders settle on war? How much domestic opposition did they anticipate? Did they resort to deception in response? And what forms did that deception take? And what were the effects? And I look at three cases, World War II, which I um, argue is primarily a case of blame shifting. The Vietnam War, which I also argue is a case of blame shifting, although... Um, less severe than in the World War II case. And then finally, the the Iraq War case, which I argue is a case of of overselling. If you want to put it in more quantitative terms, I code World War II as a, quote, high opposition, high deception case. The Vietnam War is a medium opposition, medium deception case. And the Iraq War is a low opposition, low deception case. Um, And I don't have time... uh, nearly enough time to go into all the details here in the three cases. I will say the World War II case is, is the most controversial. Um, historians have generally uh, been divided on the question of whether Roosevelt really did seek war prior to Pearl Harbor, with more historians than not coming down on the argument that he wasn't, even if he was knowingly risking war to kind of keep the other allies, Britain and the Soviet Union, in the fight. I argue that that this is probably being a bit too charitable to Roosevelt, that by the summer and certainly the fall of 1941, he was, I would argue, resigned to the U.S. getting into the war and was willing to do very little to stop the U.S. getting into it and, in fact, was pursuing policies in the Atlantic and the Pacific that he knew would probably lead to war. And at that point, I think he thought the time was right because the U.S. really needed to get in before the Soviet Union succumbed to the Nazis, At which case Nazi Germany would be in a very strong position in Eurasia and, and the U.S. would have a very tough time kind of fighting their way onto the continent. Um, this is, if you, if you will, a more, I guess, uh, a, a modern version of the back door to war argument that, uh, that Roosevelt uh, took advantage of the Pacific situation with Japan to bring the U.S. into the war in Europe against Germany, although shorn of kind of the older conspiracy theories that FDR knew Pearl Harbor was coming and let it happen, this is more an argument that FDR was knowingly putting intense pressure on Japan at a time when others were telling him, you probably shouldn't do that if you want to avoid war here. And he did so because he was resigned, again, to the fact, I use that word resigned carefully, uh, that that the U.S. would eventually enter the war against the Axis as a, as a whole. And this was one way to get in while preserving domestic unity. And uh, I can get into more on that case in the Q&A if you'd like. The Vietnam War... Uh, I, I, I describe as a more creeping form of blame shifting where FDR is not dealing with the intense opposition that, that FDR did in 1940, 1941. Uh, I would describe it as more just a general lack of enthusiasm about fighting a land war in Asia without much in the way of uh, people in the streets uh, protesting about it yet. Um, and so LBJ's instinct was to simply uh, squash or minimize debate on the subject by basically downplaying any uh, escalatory moves the U.S. was taking and um, explaining those that the U.S. did take by pointing to Viet Cong or, or communist provocations. And before you know it, the U.S. is in a fairly major land war in Asia, and really there wasn't much discussion in public of, uh, of, of how we got there. Finally, the Iraq war, um, again, overselling what I primarily discuss In that case is the Bush administration's um, rhetorical treatment of the Iraq threat and the fact that um, they were able to say a lot of things about the immediacy and the severity of the Iraq threat that didn't accord very well with the facts, primarily because the Democrats just didn't have much political interest in making an issue out of it. And I think uh, for many in the Bush administration, the thinking was, we have a solid preventive case for war. That is, Iraq's a long-term threat. That's why we should do it. But they felt they needed to embellish a bit to say, not only is this a long-term threat, it's a more immediate one. That's where they start to get into factual trouble and the deception comes into play. And there's really just not enough people calling them on some of the specifics, uranium in Africa, et cetera. Um, until the war goes badly and then all of a sudden there's a lot of interest in the origins. Okay, what are the implications of this this line of work? I think there are three that are of interest. The first is that I would not argue that that the domestic political constraints that democratic leaders face are weaker and operative as some of my realist colleagues have. I would argue that they're quite real but that they can be overcome through tactics like deception. The second point I would make is that, it, again, the marketplace of ideas, which has also been poo-pooed strongly by many realist colleagues, it is real. Um, Democratic leaders do have to make arguments in public and defend them. They have to you know, give reasons for going to war. The problem is that the marketplace of ideas uh, is not strong enough to serve as a, a deterrent to deception. Um, there are too many mixed uh, mixed incentives and too many ways that those with the information can spin it or conceal it to mislead the audience. The final point I would make is that, um, and this is where, this gets into big old debates about kind of, you know, whether, uh, whether democracy and public opinion are a good thing for foreign policy. What are, the, what are the effects of deception? Can it be justified? Many liberals argue that deception is pretty much never a good idea. Realists, certainly classical realists like Hans Morgenthau, thought that the key ingredient of leadership was deceiving the public because the public was a bunch of bumpkins. But um, my view is it's more conditional that it really depends on whether war is justified in, in our particular case. I know that's a bit weaselly, but I really can't find any general satisfying take on this. But I, I don't think it's uniformly a bad thing. I think World War II, FDR has deserved a lot of the praise he's gotten for his devious tactics in the run-up to the war. I think, you know, history looks less kindly on the other presidents that I've covered. Uh, I'm going to leave uh, final questions to my commentators because they kind of deal with them. So uh, thank you for your time, and I look forward to the, the feedback. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much. It's a a pleasure to be here and have the opportunity to comment on this absolutely terrific book. And if you have not already uh, done so, I strongly encourage you to to buy a copy and and put it under the Christmas tree for someone else. It's uh, it's really a good read. Um, And the book reminds us, uh, John's book, reminds us that democracy is not a cure-all. And this is a really important corrective because for about the last couple of decades, really since the end of the Cold War, Debates in our field, and a lot of times spilling over into public uh, commentator, commentating, uh, and public policy have uh, seen democracy as a, a really um, beneficial force uh, in foreign policy and democratization around the world as uh, a pacifying force. and. Uh, we know now, of course, that democracies are imperfect institutions. Even when they function properly, uh, they have advantages and they have disadvantages. And I thought one of the most thought-provoking um, parts of the book that you didn't really talk about today, but you get into a little bit at the end, as sort of tantalizing hint, is this idea that maybe the public actually wants to be lied to or, or wants to be deceived. And, and in some sense... Uh, democracy empowers the people, but then leaders are able to kind of give the public what they want, which sometimes is to be told that the war is a good idea and and just not have to think too hard about it. So um, that's a really interesting and and, um, uh, uh, tantalizing conclusion that that John alludes to at the end of uh, the book. Um, So... What I want to do is just sort of have a offer maybe what I'd call a friendly amendment to John's argument, which I don't really disagree with, but that uh, I think um, I'd like to sort of argue is a little bit incomplete. So in John's account, it is relatively easy. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'd say it's relatively easy for leaders to deceive the public if they decide that that's what they want to do. The public is basically listening to the story that leaders, leaders are telling. And if, it, if leaders told a different story, the public would take this in this alternative story. But the public essentially is going to go wherever leaders uh, would like them to. So manipulation in this story is a relatively easy thing to do. And I uh, actually think it's a harder job than um, John is admitting. So why, do, why am I making this argument? Well. One thing that our colleagues who study American politics and American political behavior will tell us is that people—and by by people, I mean the voting public—tends not to pay too much attention to the details of of public policy. They tend not to pay too much attention all the way up until, you know, the the Labor Day before a presidential election, when when all of a sudden people are really paying attention. But by and large, the public doesn't pay much attention. Now, sometimes this, this is portrayed as a flaw. And you have arguments that people really should pay more attention. But on some level, this is a natural state of affairs, and it's something that we all do in our own lives. We pay attention to our little slice of the world, but we're all busy people. We can't all pay attention to every issue. I'm guessing that most of the people in this room, if you're, if you're at this event, are interested in foreign policy and probably follow it more than the average person. But if we went around the room, we'd, we'd, we could find a million issues that we don't pay that much attention to. And so what do we do in those situations? When we want to know something more about uh, trade policy, something I will admit that I don't pay that much attention to, what do I do when I want to know about trade policy? I ask a trusted colleague, someone I know who follows that debate. I take a cue from them. right? And scholars of American political behavior describe the public this way, that the public is essentially rationally ignorant. It is quite normal and rational for the public not to pay that much attention until they're given a real reason to, and they follow the lead of the elites that they trust. Now think about then what this means. And in my own work, I have taken that insight as sort of a jumping off point. If we think about the public's rational ignorance, what does it mean if you are a leader? What incentives does that give you if you're the president and you want to go to war, if you're one of John's presidents and you want to go to war and you need to convince the public to at least let you do it, to stay out of your way and not provide, to to escape the constraints of public opinion what you want to do is prevent elites from speaking out against you because the public will basically live and let live as long as they see that elites are pretty unified and um, nobody is really speaking out and saying this is a bad idea. And so the public essentially looks to the elite for a fire alarm, for for some sort of signal that it's time to wake up and pay attention. But if they don't hear that fire alarm going off, they're not going to object to the leader's policies. And so if you think about it then from the president's perspective, if you can prevent that fire alarm from going off in the first place, you're probably okay, And you can proceed with the policy that you want to. So what this means is essentially that the job of trying to deceive as John is exploring so nicely in this book, is often work that has to be done inside the beltway. You need to be convincing other elites that you have a policy that they should not speak out against. And if you can do that successfully, if you can hold this coalition of beltway insiders together, you're probably okay. But I would argue that that's where the real domestic political work of deception takes place, and that it isn't a leader speaking out directly to the public—it's all done through this intermediate, um, through the intermediaries uh, of elites. So before they can blame shift, before they can oversell, leaders have to try to co-opt other elites. And by elites, I mean other members of Congress, potentially military leaders who may, for example, testify in front of members of Congress, um, even advisors or key uh, uh, bureaucrats. Um, Anyone who could, who's speaking out could really get the public's attention. And you see a huge amount of this effort expended inside the Beltway. This is something we all are familiar with uh, from uh, the in- Beltway insider kinds of debates. And it often does spill into the public sphere. And that is really part of the way in which the public ultimately becomes engaged on an issue they might otherwise essentially delegate to Washington to take care of. And a lot of the action is really taking place here. And so in some of my own work, and and John's work has really informed this work, um, uh, I try to sort of look at this insider process of trying to make sure that these issues don't ever really wake the sort of sleeping public if you wanna think of it that way. And I just wanna talk a little bit about the Vietnam case because that's the case I know best and the one that John and I have talked uh, about how our work engages how uh, each other's work engages. And I think one of the, the other great things about the Vietnam case uh, is that you, you very rarely will, will get, when you're looking for evidence in, in this kind of argument, you'll very rarely get a president who will say right into the dictaphone that domestic politics and the need to persuade the public or the need to avoid some political cost is what's motivating a decision, particularly a decision involving war, right? They very rarely say, you know, I'm doing this for domestic political reasons. The one person who does is Lyndon Johnson. So it's very convenient to study Lyndon Johnson for that reason because he says things that no one, no other president is willing to say. So how would you go about this? If you were a president and you were trying to make sure that your coalition of Beltway insiders is going to basically stay on board with your policy, what do you have to do? Well, one thing you have to do is you have to make sure that information flow within Beltway elites is under your control. So this is not just about conveying. Uh, um controlling the information that ultimately gets to the public. It may be about keeping information within the beltway compartmentalized in ways that may not be so good for the so-called marketplace of ideas. So you could do things like control who testifies before Congress. This was something that Robert McNamara was instrumentally involved in in the Vietnam War. You can decide information is power and and keep certain parts of the government from talking to each other and so <laughs> forth. Um, you may also be want to be very careful about who you send, uh, who you allow to send signals. So we, we know that members of Congress, just like members of the public, vary in terms of how much they pay attention to foreign policy. Not all members of Congress pay equal attention to foreign policy. And so certain uh, members of Congress may be looking to the leadership or to particularly um, high-profile uh, members on a particular issue, people who serve on the Armed Services Committee and or so forth and so forth, people with military experience, they may be looking to those uh, members for a cue themselves. And so making sure that you've got particular members of Congress, particular senators on board with your policy uh, is, is really very critical. And you can also do things like co-opt the opposition. You can think about who are the potential members of the opposition whose disagreement would spark a sort of cascade of opposition that would really set off that fire alarm. And I'll just read you a couple of quotes uh, from uh, the Vietnam case that uh, really for me drive home, again, it's an extreme case and it's Lyndon Johnson, but I I think it really drives home this idea that uh, leaders are working hard to control the kinds of signals that are ever going to reach the public in the, the first place. So this is in uh, 1964 when Lyndon Johnson is trying to keep the escalation of the war in Vietnam under wraps, although he is, even as he's planning uh, for it to, uh, to take place. And he's talking about the uh, ambassador site to Saigon, Henry Cabot Lodge, who he re- views as a potential Republican rival uh, in the 1964 election. And he's talking uh, on the phone with his mentor, Richard, Richard Russell in the Senate, uh, and he complains that Lodge is one of our big problems and is, quote, uh, ain't worth a damn. He can't work with anybody. Uh, and so Russell says, why don't you get somebody else who'd be more pliant and do what you want? And Johnson says, quote, he'd be back campaigning against us on this issue every day. Later on, uh, right around the same time, he gets on the, uh, uh, on the horn with Robert McNamara and he says, I think we got a... Uh, If we do whatever Lodge is recommending, we're not in too bad a condition politically, but if we don't, they could be, quote, caught with our britches down, and therefore McNamara should, quote, make a record on this thing. Why are Saigon nearly every day either approving what Lodge is recommending or trying to boost them up to do a little something extra? In other words, keep a paper trail that you are backing up what Lodge is saying every day. And similar uh, conversation with uh, Dean Rusk later the same day saying that Lodge is, quote, thinking of New Hampshire. You've got to have immediate cables back, quote, complimenting with him complimenting him and agreeing with him. If that's possible, I think we got to build that record. I think we've got to watch what that fellow says. Now, this is Lyndon Johnson saying that we need to back what our ambassador on the ground is saying, no matter what it is he's saying, in order to prevent him from using that as a pol- political weapon against him in November. Now, it's very rare that you will get such candor, but there it is. And uh, for me, that's pretty strong evidence that a lot of the work, the domestic political work of deception is being done at the elite level. And so I offer that, I think, as, you know, as I say, a friendly amendment to John's story, which I think is um, in its essentials quite right, but still uh, uh, incomplete. And yet, you know, a lot of the best work in our field uh, opens up new avenues for research, and I think uh, John's book uh, certainly does that. So, again, thank you for the opportunity to comment on it, and thank you for a very good and interesting read.
3: All right, tough Ooh. act to follow. Um, all right, I, I love the book, fantastic, very uh, thought-provoking, and I'll just raise four uh, issues that I think um, might spark some conversation. The first issue that I want to bring up is the generalizability of your argument, and I think sort of in two respects. First, although the cases are of war, um, I'm wondering how um, generalizable you think your arguments are beyond war uh, through sort of the spectrum of the use of military force uh, drone strikes, uh, you know, counterterror bombing campaigns. Um, humanitarian interventions, uh, are those things sort of covered under the general strategic deception theory that you're laying out? Um, I think there is a lot of room to continue pushing the theory in those directions, so I I just sort of raise that as sort of an encouragement on the one hand. On the other hand, um, I'm I'm not sure how generalizable some of the findings are, Um, because uh, on the one hand, when the strategic stakes are very high, a la World War II, Um, And I think World War II is a strange outlier case, because in the cases where the stakes are really, really high, the likelihood that you need to use deception to get public support is actually pretty low. I mean, if the homeland is threatened, everybody's on board. Um, So deception, not very likely. On the other hand, when the strategic stakes are very modest or, you know, quite low, um, presidents are probably going to need to oversell, as John makes the case in the book. But at the same time, um, presidents should also be easier to deter, because the stakes are so low. So in, any threat of public opposition when the stakes are low should be more important to presidents uh, then. So I, I'm not sure, in other words, how frequent the cases of major deception really are. Um, and to some extent, this is an unfair question to ask you because, as you point out in the book, um, figuring out exactly when and how presidents have deceived the public is a very quixotic task. I mean, you could spend your whole life not answering that question, but I raise it anyway. Um, The second issue uh, is, uh, I'll sort of play a little bit of devil's advocate, and I think uh, Elizabeth started this, but I think, although it's hard to know how exactly well democratic institutions do, I do think they deter more deception than John suggests. Um, You know, as he notes, you know, liberal institutionalism argues that democracy deters deception, and it's a useful corrective to point out that the real answer is not always. Um, John argues, and I love this line, that deception is a feature, not a bug, of the democratic system. Love that line. Uh, But I think actually both are correct. And really, I think the most interesting thing is that uh, they're both correct for the same exact reason. Um, The main reason presidents feel the need to deceive is that the U.S. political system is such that it's very hard to win arguments. It's very hard to build public support for things. And so presidents face a constant need to – or incentive to exaggerate, spin, conceal, lie, and so on. But at the very same time, the difficulty of winning arguments means it's actually hard to deceive and lie and spin and exaggerate and get what you want. Um, And so I think, you know, uh, taken together, oops, sorry, um, I I think the result is on balance um, that a lot of potential presidential deception um, is deterred before it's ever really even considered. Um, I, I think it just never gets out of bed in the morning. And so I think the cases that we see in the book, although important on their own right, I don't think they're a representative sample of the universe of cases of deception. And so, you know, John's, I think, completely right that once a president does make this decision to deceive, he has a pretty scary arsenal at his disposal and can be dangerous. Um, But I think more broadly, the evidence from political communication, the American public opinion literature suggests that presidents, uh, tend to have a more difficult time winning support um, for things that people don't already want to do than, than John's book suggests. Um, without trying to make the case that the system is perfect or that the marketplace of ideas is without um, problems, because I've written other stuff where I kind of lampoon that, um, here are three reasons why I think deception is tough. Um, first, and, and this relates to Elizabeth's point, I, the two-party system is a pretty good bulwark against um, winning arguments. Um, the party out of the White House has the incentive to oppose the president no matter whether the president's making sense or not. Um, And because, as Elizabeth pointed out, people tend to follow elite cues, um, when elites argue, the president has a hard time. Um, The second reason uh, that it's hard is that, um, related to the first, is that the public also sort of conveniently happens to be fairly evenly split between hawkish and dove, liberal, conservative, and so on. And so the difficulty of winning a majority opinion about almost anything is kind of baked into the body politic. Um, and so that not only reinforces the electoral competition between party elites, um, but it also makes it very difficult for presidents to kind of go public and win a national argument about just about anything. And I'll, I'll caveat here, and maybe we can come back to it, the question of whether you, how to win elites and how that works, because I think that is a very important point there. And then the third thing, and this is also <clears throat> something Elizabeth brought up, is that It's a lot harder to build uh, support for military intervention when the public isn't paying attention at all, which is very often the case. Um, And this is especially true for threats that are complicated, geographically distant, or are likely to only emerge in a long run, um, an example here would be when the Bush administration, sort of in the wake of the Iraq war, first tried to get people worried about Iran's nuclear program, um, those alarms fell on mostly deaf ears. They tried pretty hard to inflate the threat in 2005 and 6, and they got almost nowhere with it, because um, the public only has enough room in their brain for maybe one, one issue at a time, and they, they were kind of busy with Iraq still. Um, and so I think just taken together, um, these factors simultaneously provide presidents incentive to try to exaggerate because they do face these challenges to getting their way. But at the same time, it makes it very hard for them to win. Uh, and so I, I think the result is that presidents don't deceive uh, in a major way nearly as often as you might imagine. And that even when they do decide to oversell in particular, that it's very difficult to win. Um, so the third issue then um, is... Uh, a question about the changing calculus of deception. Uh, I'm going to trademark that phrase. Don't use that. Um, So uh, you stress throughout the book, John, that... um, uh, very rightly, I think, the importance of the President's assessment of how um, likely a, a quick and, and decisive, easy, low-cost victory is, um, whether to deceive or not. If you're going to deceive and it's going to be risky, that's a big risk. You might want not want to take that. But um, if you think you're going to win a quick victory, then you can deceive and get away with it. Um, so as I was thinking, as I was reading, what are some factors that would change, maybe in a systematic way, the likely costs of... Wars that would then sort of show up in presidential's calculations about whether to deceive, and I thought of a couple things that might, that I want to get your opinion on. The first is the adoption of the all-volunteer force. Um, a lot of people have pointed out that you know when you move to an all-volunteer force, the potential salience or cost to the public of war goes down a lot, especially smaller ones, um, and so that you know, it may make it easier for the president to use force in the first place, to imagine using force in the first place because it's less politically risky. And that seems to me like it could have sort of a follow-on implication for uh, the use of deception. Um, And the second factor is the rapid evolution of communications technology and the internet. Um, Sort of going from the bookend of World War II on the one side all the way to the Iraq War on the other, it it seems to me that an extended presidential campaign to blame shift in particular, to really sort of, um, you know, very sneakily hide the facts. It just seems a lot harder in the age of WikiLeaks um, than it you know might have been 60, 70 years ago. Uh, but I, I ask you know for your thoughts there. And then the last bit, uh, just a comment that um, I wanted to sort of weigh in on briefly was um, the question of whether we should, um, how we should view presidential deception. Is it appropriate? Um, to lie and deceive uh, the American public or or not. And, uh, you know, John weaseled, he split the baby in two, and and he said, look, the lesson to be learned is not that dishonesty should be avoided at all costs, but that we have to learn to discriminate between deception that advances the national interest and deception that harms the national interest. At the very least, deception cannot be ruled out a priori as contrary to the national interest. Now, I'm not particularly sanguine myself about letting the president decide that he alone knows what, the national interest is, uh, without being forced ever to compete in the marketplace of ideas as imperfect as it is. But I will certainly acknowledge that, at least theoretically, I can imagine times when a president might be morally justified to deceive the public in the national interest. Um, But in order to kind of keep that in bounds, in check, I'd like to propose what we might call just deception doctrine uh, for your consideration. So just like just war doctrine, uh, presidents who deceive must start with just cause. Uh, deceiving only in the self-defense of the nation, right? The, the truly, this is the point of the blame shifting, right? The whole point of that is because people like it when it's, somebody's attacking us. Or so let's start there. Deceiving people only in self-defense of the nation, not in order to engage in preventive wars or wars of choice. Second, presidents should exercise right intention and proportionality, um, seeking only to deceive in the service of the national good and not allowing their lives and deceits to spread to domestic politics or personal gain or illegal activities, any of those other sorts of things. And then finally, and I think most importantly, presidents should only deceive as a last resort. Um, Though the majority may be wrong or nearsighted, uh, in a democracy, a president has a moral obligation to try to conduct an open and honest sales job first um, if he fails, only then can he move on to deception. And even then, of course, presidents should be cautious because, after all, if a majority opposes your plan, your plan might not be a very good one. All right, thanks.
0: All right, John, um, since uh, you got a couple questions there, if you want to respond, you can, or I can post some. I think you were, you were asked about uh, the the
3: uh,
0: when manipulation or deception uh, is likely to succeed and, and have the uh, conditions changed uh, such that it's harder. Um, but uh, if you want to speak to a couple of the points that your uh, discussants raised, go for it.
1: Yeah, I might, I might maybe respond to a few, I think, of the macro points that came out between the two excellent set of comments. I think the big one is how easy is deception in my account. And I think um, I probably uh, implied to readers that it's more easy than I actually think it is. Um, Partly this is because uh, in political science we come up with these very concise kind of elegant or or quickly stated models of these behaviors that make it sound like it's a rule book. You know, if you want to deceive, just blame shift. I think there's a reason I focused on political masters like FDR and LBJ. Um, Whatever I think of the uh, normative merits of what they were up to, these were master politicians and there is nothing easy about the political feats they pulled off in kind of maintaining the domestic unity they did to the extent they did while getting the country into these wars. I'll withhold my judgment about George W. Bush and his political skills. I just think it was a lower degree of difficulty case and, and didn't require the political skills that the other two had. That said, I don't think the book properly lays out, for the reasons Elizabeth stated, exactly why this is such and how it's such a difficult task. And it's I agree, it's because the elite part of the story is underdeveloped. Um, when I talk about the domestic situation that each president confronted, I talk a lot about the elite audience, but i don 't really that doesn't play out in the um, the deception part of the theory. I don 't break out the deceptions to uh, deceptions targeted at elites and those targeted at uh, the public um, and so I, I agree with that point uh, th- I guess this also goes to Trevor's point about you know, how much does the democratic process deter this behavior in the first place? I'm, I'm sure he's right. And in fact, I think, Trevor, you captured exactly the thing that spurred me on in this book, which is that those liberal scholars I initially was so um, dismissive of were on something really important, which is that g- g- generating consent for war in a democracy is quite hard um, otherwise, you really wouldn't need all this political gamesmanship uh, that you see from political masters like FDR and LBJ. I just was more impressed by their ability to overcome these constraints and some of the shifty things they were doing than the constraints themselves. Um, uh, a, a few words on on has this become more difficult over time highlighted by Trevor. Um uh, perhaps it has. And, and actually I've I've been trying to follow related work quite closely. I would point to John Caverly's book on Democratic militarism. The more I think about it, I would see these deception tactics as part of a larger suite of ways that shrewd political leaders kind of um, keep the domestic situation quiet while they do what they want to do. And there are plenty of them that have nothing to do with deception. John Caverly highlights things like basically minimizing the cost to the median voter of war. Drone warfare is a perfect example of this. I think presidents, if they had their druthers, would simply make war irrelevant to the median voter. I, I, Elizabeth's alluding to this too. The whole point is just to keep it off the radar. They don't want a big debate about these things. So in a way, if you have to do what LBJ is doing, uh, or, or more importantly, or more, uh, even more, I think, difficult, FDR, you've already kind of half-lost the game. And this is where I agree with Trevor. Uh, I don't think any president wants to have to do what FDR had to do to get the country into World War II in a unified fashion. Um, I, as with many projects, you finish it and then you realize you've scratched the smallest element of a huge tapestry. And in a way, this project has given me a great deal of respect for our political leaders as politicians. Academics, we often develop a kind of condescending view toward the people who do this stuff. And I think it's very wrong headed. I mean, again, without getting into the normative merits of these policies you don't become president of the United States unless you're a supremely skilled at the art of politics. And I do think deception is an important part of that, but it's just a, a small part at the end of the day. And um, for people, again, who would come to a session like this, this isn't news to you. But um, you know, if if one were to spend your whole life on this topic, I've become much more interested in just the art of political leadership as a general matter. And it's because I was focused as a, um, you know, a young Catholic who grew up going to Catholic schools, you know, I'm as like many realists, I'm a disappointed moralist. I gravitated first toward the morally compelling issue deception, but now I've become much more interested in a general way in simply the demands of leading in a democracy, which I think are quite imposing as we're seeing today. All right. That, that, I'll leave it at that for
0: now. Yeah, let me, let me ask a couple uh, uh, follow-up questions here. Uh, let, let's uh, speak of, uh, since it came up, of uh, drone warfare and such. The United States, by my count, is at war or uh, occasionally bombing uh, with drones or what have you, uh, and uh, up the scale of violence in, in places like Afghanistan and Syria. There are six countries... Uh, where I think we're at war. Different people might have slightly different counts, which is kind of an amazing thing. But, uh, and yet, while we're uh, at war in six countries, or whatever it is, uh, the willingness uh, to employ massive force in those places is quite limited. So I think it's hard to find a time in American history, or maybe any country's history, where there was so much appetite for wars in terms of the number of places, but so little appetite in terms of costs that we will expend in lives and dollars. It's a strange thing. Um, so I wonder where that leaves us uh, in, in this. Or uh, you know, On the one hand, uh, because of the, the stakes being remote and esoteric, uh, presidents, I think in your view and in mine certainly, uh, tend to oversell. The war in Libya, for example, I think was incredibly oversold, uh, if we want to call it a war. But at the same time, their tolerance for costs, their willingness to invest uh, or take big risks is markedly reduced, so we arguably have a gap opening between the rhetoric which says this is the most important thing in the world. You know, ISIS is, is uh, the biggest threat since whatever, and yet uh, the willingness to uh, spend to deal with it, uh, lives and dollars, is low. You know, everybody says ISIS is this terrible threat, but hardly anyone wants to send uh, even small amounts of ground forces there. So uh, what about all that? And I, I, this is open to, to all three of you, but go first, John. What, okay.
1: No, thank you. And I, I guess this will allow me to partially address a point Trevor made. Um In the book I talk briefly about Kosovo, and then in a footnote about Libya, and yes, there is overselling in humanitarian cases. Um, I hate to be so cynical, but when you look at the the run-up to the Kosovo intervention, it's hard to take seriously the arguments that the Clinton administration was making about an an impending genocide. partly because they simply didn't prepare for anything like that. If you look at the actual intervention, uh, very little of it would have been even relevant to a situation like that. Uh, we were It was from the air. There was very little provision made for actual uh, rescue efforts for this, what was supposed to be massive refugees. And so I think Libya, you have the same thing. I think there were, it was massively overstated what Gaddafi was about to do to the to the civilians in, in Benghazi. And um, it, the evidence is much too recent to kind of make some claims about deception, but I think you do see overselling. I would say about ISIS, though, uh, if I had to draw an analogy, the war against ISIS, it looks, it's looking more Vietnam-like to me these days, in the sense that actually I think Obama's instinct is to um, understate. Uh, what the private deliberations are probably actually looking like. I mean, you can see this. I'm not saying there's been a plan all all along to massively escalate, but I guarantee at an early point there were lots of meetings like this could go in this direction, like with Vietnam. It's actually more likely than not to go in this direction. And Obama himself, like other presidents, might not want to believe this, might want to keep a lid on things, not escalate. But... um, to me, I, I think there's a certain, uh, it, it rhymes a bit with Vietnam, where every, every few months after many promises that this is simply a continuation of current, of existing policy, no, nothing big to see here, we continue to ramp up, and it turns out that we've probably had plan, plans all along for a fa- fairly major war there. I'm not sure it's going to go in that direction, but I see more of the parallel to, to Vietnam in this one. Okay.
0: Anyone else?
3: Flame shifting and overselling is a is a nice dichotomy or, or you know couple of categories, but I think an additional one that I'm thinking of Ben, especially after your uh, discussion there, was is underselling is a big uh, tool in the arsenal as well. And I think one of the things that um, both Bush and now Obama have done is is to undersell the costs of intervention. Um, In addition to overselling the threats, underselling how complicated and how extended a stay we're going to have in many of these places. And I think, you know, it starts because they're able to conceal a lot of what's going on and just not discuss it and it never comes up. And then, you know, along the way they can kind of just keep underselling and it, it, you know, it's a little distressing.
2: (laughs) I don't really have any quibble with any of that. I guess I would just add... um, when I teach about public opinion in my US foreign policy class, I always talk to my students about painful trade-offs and how unwilling we as humans are to make them. Uh, and we do this in so many parts, so many areas of life. I mean, if you ask people, are you, do you want to spend more on education? You get a very high percentage who will say yes. And if you ask them the next question, are you willing to raise taxes in order to pay for an increase, in, increase in spending on education, you get a very low percentage or certainly a, there's certainly a gap there, right, which if you are forced to think about it logically makes no sense, and yet um, I think the I- idea that you, you want your leaders to do something about threats that you're constantly being told are very important and also pay no cost to, for that is on some level the natural condition of things, right? And this gets to this sort of hint that you have at the end of the book that the public almost wants to be told this, and so when you think about how to cure this problem, if you think it's a problem, I'm not, it's a very hard problem to cure, which is one reason why I think you gets, it gets back to this idea that this is a feature, not a bug, right? That, that it, If you, you, it's very hard to imagine a president being able to convince people in the absence of an existential threat or, or, or an attack like Pearl Harbor, um, that this is a, this is a threat, it's not the biggest threat in the world so so let's say we don't oversell at all right it's it's a threat it's not the biggest threat in the world but it would be very good to deal with but it is potentially very costly and so we are going to invest an uncertain amount for an unspecified time I maybe mean, you know, pure honesty here just it it sounds politically unfamiliar because we don't hear people ever talk about it in those terms but i think i think it's just a, it's a, it's a natural um Almost a natural human condition to deal with the complexities of life in this way and have these reactions. And so, in some, on some level, this is a natural political way for leaders to respond to that kind of those kinds of incentives. And so, I guess it's another depressing way of saying I'm not sure this is going to. I think this is a feature, not a bug. That's not going away anytime
0: soon. I'll
1: uh, say one. Quick you may. Note. Okay, one quick really, note because is really I just was reading sure. an article yesterday about realism and kind of uh, its approach to. Democracy over time, realists used to re- be really hard on the public uh, back in the classical realist days, the fifties and the sixties, and basically say the public is fickle and um, wants incompatible things, and hence leader. You know, we basically need an elitist structure with leaders insulated from that. And uh, as our as the academy has become more liberal, I think uh, we've all adopted a certain mindset that you don't say these things about the public. And so even among realists these days, when they focus on domestic politics, they'll often after go after interest groups like the Israel lobby, which fine, I think there's some merit to that argument, and, or other, other kind of domestic pathologies, but very few realists anymore go right after the public as, a, as the problem or the source of the problem. And I kind of hang back from doing that as well until probably the last sentence of the book. But I do think, yes, I do think there's something deeper baked into the system that encourages some of these pathological problems. And unfortunately, no politician or even academic has the incentive to say it, as it is, I mean, because who you don't. Make a
2: free lunch? Well, and
1: who, you know, and how could you say anything bad about the public, right? So uh, anyway, I'll just leave it at that.
0: Okay, one more question before we go to uh, audience questions. I think this is for I don't know both of you, Elizabeth. Certainly, uh, partly for you. The the um, late great political scientist E. Scat in the semi sovereign people says politics is like a, a street fight watched by a crowd, and uh, the fight. Uh, the results of the fight will be affected by whether or not the crowd gets involved. So it's the person who's losing the fight who might want the crowd to get involved. Um, and so uh, based on that, I, I'm thinking out loud here, which is dangerous, but uh, propose uh, that isn't a lot of this about uh, how salient and important the war is, this difference of opinion. Might it not be the case that uh, when we're dealing with low-stakes uh, relatively distant uh, wars, which are the kind that we mostly fight in the United States because we're so powerful and we have the opportunity to select into all these things, uh, that we have a kind of dysfunctional autocratic politics of low salience where it's an elite uh, sport. Uh, but when costs get really high, as they did ultimately in Vietnam and to, uh, in, in maybe in a sense in, in Iraq after years, and certainly uh, was the case in the run-up to the World Wars, you have A sort of a more functional, healthy system because there's more engagement. And uh, what sometimes elites are doing maybe is uh, losing, feeling like they're losing the debate, the Bush administration feeling like it didn't have a great position on public opinion going into the Iraq war, and in those cases trying to broaden or socialize the debate, as Scott Snyder would say, as opposed to uh, uh, appealing just to elites.
2: So I guess I would say I agree with that. And I think what, what he's really saying is that it's all about controlling the audience, right? Who is the audience for these decisions? And and as John alluded to, in the last couple of decades, a lot of writing and political science and a lot of public commentary and a lot of our democratization policy, right? This idea we should go around the world installing, you know, encouraging and in, in some cases installing democracies has been based on the idea that the audience is the public at large, right? That you have this direct contact between leaders and the mass public. And um, in, in my work and, and, and in others work, uh, people have really tried to sort of shrink our conception of what the democratic audience is for decisions for war, that it is actually a, a smaller number. I would go further even than you did and say, uh, certainly in these smaller interventions, it's a pretty small number of elites that pay attention. Uh, even in the case of Vietnam and the Iraq War, it's not as though it's not that people weren't aware there was a Vietnam War going on after <coughs> 1960, mid 1965, or that the Iraq War. I mean, Iraq is a little bit of a different case because it came in the heels of 9/11, so it was very salient. But if you think about how long it took for there to be real accountability. Consequences. I mean, it took in, in the Iraq case until the 2006 midterm elections. In the Vietnam case, it, the if you look at the public opinion data, the percentage of people who thought that we should uh, withdraw from Vietnam uh, did not drop or did not percentage of people, did not go above 50 percent. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it did not go above 50% until after the Tet Offensive. And that's that's pretty far into the war, right? And so often when I talk about my current work, people will say, well, but what about the people protesting in the streets in Vietnam? And I just, I look back on that and I, I say, well, yes, but it took a very long time for those public accountability mechanisms to kick in. And so I I guess I come back to um, the the our leaders have a, a tremendous amount of leeway and it is a feature. It's not a bug. It's built into the system, but the, the, the public is a constraint. You can't, Trevor's right. You can't get away with anything. And the two party system does work as a sort of macro check set of checks and balances. On the other hand, it gives leaders an awful lot of room to run. And we as scholars and those who are interested in foreign policy are quite interested in the, the resulting choices and the space that's left for, for leaders to make good decisions, bad decisions, an awful lot of interesting stuff happens in the space that the public affords elites and our leaders. And so I think it's a bigger space than most people think.
1: I, I've talked enough. I don't know if Trevor- I,
3: I will. I will follow up on that. I, I think those are really good points. The, the marketplace of ideas, we, we like to borrow that economic metaphor and and... The idea that the market will find equilibrium around truth and justice and beauty and all that's a beautiful thing, but I think the problem in in real life is that the um, the lag between being lied to and figuring it out is so long that presidents do have this space to operate that we I think m- many times wish they didn't have. I think one of the other things that that John doesn't address directly in the book, but I think is to me even a bigger problem than maybe deception is the ability of the president has to change the the frame of the debate, simply by taking action not, without regard to deception. I'm just going to send troops to the Gulf, uh, like Bush did in 1990. Uh, that changed the debate, but we couldn't have a... It didn't matter. Deception was irrelevant. He sent 500,000 troops to the Gulf. Okay, okay. now we'll have a debate. Hmm, that's not fair. Uh, or I'm going to you know, put 13 drone bases around the world, and no one's going to know about it, and then we'll have a debate about them. That, that's, I mean, it's not deception per se, but it, it really does affect the ability of the marketplace of ideas and other political actors to catch up and and counterbalance the president. So the deception is one of the depressing parts about it. But I think just sort of the imperial, you know, executive powers the president has to move the military around the board is is yet another one.
0: Okay, we have a good amount of time for audience Q&A. There are are three rules. Uh, Wait to be called on. Uh, Wait for the microphone and uh, announce who you are. Oh, yeah, there's a fourth rule, which is uh, ask a question, not a uh, speech uh, let's uh, go to the gentleman over here first uh, on the right uh,
4: my name is Stephen Shore. I thought it was a really wonderful series of talks but I would make a distinction between deception a a, a in as part of a general narrative or a deceptive tactics used in support of a true outlook in World War II, to look at uh, Roosevelt said in one of his last campaign speeches in Boston, not a center of pro-British sentiment, that your boys will not be sent to fight in a foreign war when he probably knew that the chances of getting into a foreign war were rising daily. And we should not forget that we got into the war in Europe in World War II because Hitler declared war on us. If Hitler had not done this, it would have been far more likely, uh, we might have not have gotten into a good deal later, if, if at all. Uh, the other thing Roosevelt you know, Roosevelt also said about Lend Lease, it's like lending your neighbor a garden hose, which was patently absurd, even if you favored Lend Lease. And the other element of deception was, it. not only do we, and all, all nations, overplay the evil of their opponents, but they downplay the evil of their allies. And World War II is a key example that Stalin's Russia was not exactly a, li- a perfect libertarian society. But we downplay this, and in, in the course of because of the tremendous effort the Red Army was making on the Eastern Front, and the other there were other deceptions, like um, Wilson saying he kept us out of war, deliberately using the past tense when he probably recognized that with each day we, if Germany resumed our. Um, Unrestricted submarine warfare—that we were going to have to get into World War One. Yes, uh, John. Any any response? It sounds like he—you uh, should buy
0: the book. I think you'd like it. It, you know, he
1: talks about yeah, a lot of this. I, yeah, I do cover some of this in the in the World War Two chat. I, I would say an important thing about the World War Two case. I was probably not strategically wise. I kind of said FDR was deceptive in very fundamental ways about his aims, et cetera. One does not have to argue that to still find a lot of deceptive tactics in what, you know, Even if even if the conventional interpretation is right, and FDR wanted nothing more to kind of, uh, keep the allies in the fight, keep them supplied. Uh, he still is uh, fairly indirect and deceptive. Uh, certainly, I'd say through the summer of 1941, the Lend-Lease debate, destroyer sure bases, you name it, there's a lot of uh, misdirection going on. I just, I was compelled to argue that he was even more deceptive than that. And so I take your point um, and again, I'm very careful to separate the political tactics from the larger question of whether war made sense. I happen to think the U.S. had good reasons to get into the Second World War in Europe. Others are not so sure, um, but I really do try to separate that from the, the tactics being used.
0: Uh, let's do a couple over here. Uh, over here, sir, on the far left. We'll a couple.
5: I, have a, I have a real question, um, one for Mr. Thrall. Um, you suggested that the hawks and doves among the public are evenly split. But is that really true if we start talking about, we talk about market, we talk about numbers and costs and lives and how much of the tax dollars are going to something that has very few good positive returns?
3: Uh, I, I mean, just from numerically speaking, y- yes, the hawks and doves are roughly, you know, evenly proportioned. Um, and, uh, but you know, I think can, to get behind the surface of your question, um, one of the interesting things is that doves are sometimes hawkish, it, but it just depends on what you ask them to do. <laughs> you know, so if uh, if you're asking to go intervene for humanitarian purposes, the doves all sort of sign up, and the hawks are a little suspicious, but. If it's something else, uh, let's go bomb terrorists uh, into the ground. Doves get a little suspicious while the hawks raise their hand. So um, maybe it's a little flip to say, you know, hawks and doves, but liberal, conservative, stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's pretty evenly divided.
0: Okay, right in front here.
5: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Michael Kurtzig, who worked on the Middle East. And my question is something which you may not address in the book. But what is the responsibility and complicity of the media in this case? Or are decisions made so quickly that the media doesn't have a chance to respond until long after? Uh, some of us, in fact, in 2003, at that time I was no longer working there, but saw the catastrophe of the decision that uh, Cheney and Bush made to invade Iraq. That was a, a blunder beyond imagination, and we have the results now. But I don't remember exactly what, what the press did, what the media did, in order to try to influence that. Or is it the case that once the decision is made, you know there's not much you can do about it
1: I think well, I will say something, but Trevor political sorry okay how's this better? Um, Trevor is a political communications scholar and and probably can can say more uh, more on this but i would I generally subscribe to the view that the media Uh, quote, indexes or reflects what elites are talking about. I think Elizabeth would share this view as well. And so what you'll find in the media is no better or no worse than what you're hearing among uh, Beltway insiders. So in the Iraq case, the Democrats simply chose not to make a big issue of the case for war for political reasons. And because of that, uh, the media really didn't have a lot to say independently about the merits of the case. Um, there are some who want the media to play more of an independent fact-checking role. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I think it all depends on our pet issue. When we're losing a debate, we want the media to be more independent and fact-checked. When we're winning, we're going well, the media is doing its job. So, um, you know, this wasn't a central part of my story, but I, I think part of the reason I am sanguine that, um... That at least these institutions can be overcome by shrewd leaders is because institutions like the media more reflect elite debate than independently challenge it.
2: So I might just make a quick amendment to that. Um, So I think the the standard story has been this idea that the media indexes elite debate. There's been some newer work by Matthew Baum and Phil Potter and um, Baum, also a book with uh, Tim Gorling that takes a more strategic view. And this idea that um, the media is what the media wants is to report news, the news, which, which means that um, a Republican criticizing a Democratic president on some level isn't that newsworthy. What you really want, the juicy story, is an insider criticizing, yeah. right, or the uh, or somebody from inside the administration speaking out, right, or or a Democrat in Congress criticizing a Democratic president, and they've done extremely interesting work showing that. Those are the kinds of stories that get reported disproportionately. Now, what does that, so my interest in this comes from, well, what does that mean? If you're the the president, what does that actually mean? It means that you have to work harder to prevent those kinds of cues from ever getting to the public than you would, So, not all elite cues are created equal. So you're gonna concentrate your efforts to get the endorsement that would be surprising, right? So it's very helpful to get the endorsement of somebody from the other party. That's the benefit of, of, of having somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge as your ambassador to Saigon, right? It's the famous line, um, it's LBJ, right, um, about J. Edgar Hoover. Better to have him uh, inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent, right? Um, the flip side of that is... If you bring the, the opposition into your government and they become dissatisfied, you've given them access to information and a platform for speaking out. And, and you, you those quotes that I read you are the concern that if Henry Cabot Lodge gets annoyed, he's gonna start speaking out. And he will not just be any old Republican at that point. He will be a, a, a Johnson administration insider saying, I've been on the inside and I think what Johnson is doing is not good, right? So you see this all the time. The media, um, the, media the incentives that the media has in turn, affects what the president might do. And in the Iraq case, I think um, getting Colin Powell on board was really key, right? And and you know we know um, that Bush put a lot of effort into getting Powell's endorsement because Powell was known to be skeptical, right? And and so being able to report that Powell was in favor was a uh, something the Bush administration wanted. So I think we have a slightly more sophisticated understanding yeah. now. Um, of what the media's incentives are, and in turn, you know what that means for what the president's incentives are.
1: I, I'll tie that off just, just.
3: One note, though, um, I agree that the, the Bauman Groling stuff is, is very good, but actually the first person to make that argument was Dan Hallen, mm-hmm. in his yes, book, The Uncensored right, War yes, in 1986. Right. And when he pointed out that media coverage of Vietnam, which everyone sort of looks back and assumes was always negative all the time, actually only turned against the war um, to predominantly negative after the Democrats turned against Johnson. So uh, it was when the Democrats started criticizing the war that the media then indexed to that very juicy elite uh, contrary opinion, and that's when things really tumbled out of control for Johnson.
0: You know, the Iraq War is a funny thing in the in the, the gap between the the Beltway and and academic understanding of it, where the Beltway understanding is largely the media failed, they didn't do their job, or the intelligence community failed, they didn't do their job. So we got to reorganize, and you know, to be uh, overly uh, to summarize too much, the academic view is like uh, basically the media will never check do there'll be very few checks and balances until there's elite. Uh, There'll be very little checking from the media until there's elite checks and balances, until there's uh, uh, dissent among uh, elite players. So, you know, you'll wait for the media to, to uh, stop uh, bad ideas forever. And likewise, uh, the intelligence community is more, a, you know, a gloss that you put on uh, things you want to do. You get an intelligence report to use it. So there's a very big uh, gap on this here. Let's go uh, to the gentleman with the glasses. there, uh, halfway up.
5: Um, I, w- I would just ask the, uh, the other panelists to... Oh, do you mind just identifying oh, yeah, yourself? Yeah, so. I'm, D- I'm David Hoffman. I, I write uh, sometimes for the Foreign Service Journal. Um, and I was struck when uh, Trevor uh, Thrall uh, was talking about some of the in- institutional uh, barriers uh, towards going to war. Uh, it's already, and Professor uh, Sch- Schu- Schussler o- also talked about this, in the example of the Iraq war, this Rather catastrophic uh, to editorialize but i'll i 'll just leave it at that uh, my my so my question for the other uh, panelists or or professor thrall if he wants to uh, you you said specifically that one of the uh, barriers to uh, the u s going to war is that we have the quote two party system, and uh, several there several people have pointed out sure that uh, You know in terms of the uh, iraq invasion there were some democrats who uh, voted against and spoke out against it but for the most part no they didn't the john kerry uh, hillary clinton you know i won't read off the whole list and so my question i guess my here's my question to to close with um Is it really a uh, barrier to going to war if you have one party, the Republicans, almost solidly, with the exception of, say, Ron Paul, uh, being for the war, for the invasion, and the other party, the other major party, the Democrats in this case, uh, largely uh, voting for and favoring the invasion, many of them have since turned against it, including uh, of course, famously Hillary herself but is is this is this really and I'll end on this question is this really really a barrier of any uh, significance when a, a classic test uh, of it working failed miserably? Who's taking that one?
3: that me? Go
2: ahead,
3: Trevor. Mm-hmm. I, okay. I mean, I, I think you're suggesting that we might describe our system as an intermittent two-party system. Um, occasionally we have two parties, sometimes we don't. Um, when don't we? Um, when typically, when you face a really big threat that's obvious to everyone, everyone gets on the same page. Um, Vietnam is a good case of that. Uh, when things started, or, you know, if you look at the early 60s, Uh, through the mid-60s, 75% of the public said, yeah, Vietnam is in our strategic interest. The journalists who went over to cover it thought so. I mean, it was, you know, communism, man. It's obvious. Um, It's less obvious when you don't have the North Star of the communists in the Cold War. So uh, post-91, I think it gets more likely that we have a two-party system. So Clinton wants to invade Haiti. Time out. Um, Clinton wants to expand the mission in Somalia. Time out. Um, Hey, let's go get involved in Bosnia. Oh, God, no. Right. So you do have a two party system in a lot of those cases where the stakes are low. Um, So I'm not as as cynical about whether we have two parties. I do think sometimes, though, that um, for various political reasons, Democrats find it useful not to speak up. And, you know, elections being one of them, 9-11 being another, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Anybody else on that? Uh, Ma'am, right here in front.
6: Because we have an intermittent two-party system, it seems... Oh, do you mind just identifying yourself? uh, My name is Alice Artousar. I'm a writer and researcher. And it seems that the media is where most or many people feel they need to be able to rely on, but yet the book Truth, the First Casualty of War, historically reminds us how we have not been able to really rely on the media. And I guess my one question is, what are the solutions to under, or or where people can turn to, or how to engage people more and earlier, so deception is not so easy, and control of the media by the elites on board is not so easy. A friend of mine had a cousin who was a reporter for the New York Times in the 1980s, and he told her it's not news when a president lies. And so much of the media has beaten the drums for war, NPR, considered National Pentagon radio, in many instances. So there seems to be a lack of accountability And more reporters going to jail, more whistleblowers going to jail, who are essentially adhering to the Constitution. Bradley Manning was adhering to Nuremberg when he exposed war crimes, yet he's the one who's in jail. So, and... and A lot of countries that spend more than we do on education in Scandinavia are pleased with the results. They see something for their money. Historically, at least since the 1950s, with a 90% tax rate and a very well-funded education system for the most part nationally, where music, art, and analytical and critical thinking were exposed, that isn't what a lot of people see today. And for instance, in just a, a brief comparison, in my high school education, we used Time Magazine when Luce was still alive for international relations, and I used it in another class for propaganda. And it was that balance that was... I think more a part of education than, and I've seen textbooks from 1941 that are just outstanding. And the standardized tests. I think. think Thank you. I just, I just want to add the standardized tests that I've been editing and proofreading are dumbing down education. Does anyone have solutions?
0: Yeah, let's. You know, John's uh, book is uh, admirably short at 120. Pages uh, and, and what it, uh, and he, he didn't include one of those conclusions that has the sort of perfunctory uh, bullet pointed suggestions. But now, uh, here the opportunity presents itself uh, to, you know, uh, tell us what to do about this if there's solutions.
1: Well, I think uh, listening to the discussion and reflecting, I, normally we decry partisanship and polarization, but Actually, partisanship is a decent break on the ability of leaders to deceive. Maybe Trevor was getting at this a bit. If leaders know that they simply have no chance to persuade a solid 30 to 40% of the public, that's going to put a real ceiling on whatever support uh, they can get for what they're doing. Um, Normally, we don't celebrate this kind of of polarization, but it is interesting. Um, We tend to value education, but the thing about educated people is not that they become wiser, they become more partisan. You know, you don't have ideologues just walking around indifferent. Ideologues are us, right? And so ideology can be very destructive in a lot of ways, but it really does put a hard check on the ability of, le- of leaders to unify the country. So for all the bad it does in other areas, I guess if you wanna deal with deception, I could find worse solutions than encourage- encouraging partisan polarization.
0: Anybody else on the solution front? I mean, everybody always says this you know, I'm, I'm going to make the same point. Uh, you know, we, what we really need in our foreign policy is to go back to the good old fashioned days of bipartisan consensus around containment, where we just heard in two different ways here uh, is no, uh, you know, the problem is too much consensus often, not not too little. So just to, to make was, it more exciting.
2: Also, there w- never was bipartisan. Right. Well, that too. Yeah, to right. That, that was discussion for another day.
0: Right. Right. Indeed. Uh, yeah, Sir, right here uh, in the third row. We'll try to get you two in a second. Thank you very much, I'll keep this uh, concise. My name is Michael Bucklew. So this question is directed to uh, Mr. Schuster. What criteria did you have for selecting your case studies in the book? And do you see your theory as more broadly applicable to other US cases such as World War I or the Gulf War or in other democratic states?
1: Um, are you a political science student or a professor somewhere? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, well... I'll, the magic phrase, case selection. Case selection, yes. <laughs> so uh, so uh, what I... The reason I didn't talk about this, the reason um, I looked mostly at U.S. cases, uh, besides their inherent interest to me, uh, was I see the U.S. as a very good laboratory for seeing if democratic institutions have the effects we claim for them, good or bad, one of the reasons is what Ben alluded to, that the U.S. historically, because of its the free security that it's enjoyed geographically, et cetera, our leaders have a lot of choice about what wars they get into. Um, and we tend to have a rather weak uh, executive branch relative to other democracies, um, uh, kind of more decentralization. And so for those two reasons, I thought if democratic institutions are going to have the effects ascribed to them, pro or anti-deception, we should see it in the U.S. case. Uh, Beyond that, I looked for variation in the level of domestic opposition uh, to see if it led to different sets of deceptive tactics, blame shifting or overselling. I also looked for cases, uh, because I'm uh, not an historian where there was uh, ample enough literature that I could triangulate and, and navigate among the, the literatures that were there to figure out how strong of a case I could make that deception was actually at play. That said, I do survey some other cases briefly in the book. Um, I mentioned Kosovo and Libya. I also, in the conclusion, referenced some work on the Gulf War, and, um, Trevor brought up the Gulf War. Gulf War is very interesting. Um, I almost did it as a chapter in my dissertation of just an honest approach, because Bush, I think, really was—H.W. Bush was one of the few presidents to kind of say, I'm going to do this, and you're free to take a vote. And the vote was quite close, and he didn't try to dress it up a lot, and he did pay a political price for being rather straightforward. That said, there was a little bit of trickery there at the end where um, there was this elaborate show of negotiations with, between Baker and Tariq Aziz, which my colleague Evan Bray and Montgomery has called counterfeit diplomacy, where really uh, Bush um, wasn't really going to listen to any proposals from Saddam Hussein about withdrawing his forces at that point. Um, and then I do look at some other countries briefly as well, Israel um, with the Le- Lebanon 82 and, and Suez Wars. And... Um, but I, I have found that uh, uncovering deception in even a few cases, it's made me very humble empirically. And maybe this is an excuse, but the notion of going out there and demonstrating that deception is pervasive and that I found it in the following 20 cases versus 50 where I did not, um, it sounds to me like the work of a lifetime, but um, maybe I'm just tooting my own horn here. So anyway, I'll leave it at that.
0: Uh, But uh, the next person right below, the former questioner.
7: Christopher Darnton, Catholic University. John, you and I have talked about this uh, a little before, but I was hoping you could tell us more about how this process of deception plays out within the administration and within the executive branch in particular, because this has been largely a story about presidents and then the public, sometimes with elites or media coming in. Um, I think your distinction between lying and deception is very good. And the idea of deception is there's either information coming in about threats or expected costs of war, and then we're Spinning it or changing that information when it goes back out to the public, or that there's misrepresentation of the process within the halls of government, uh, the degree of consensus, the rationale behind a decision that's already been made. And the idea is there's a gap between the information that is known and the information that is presented, and that's where deception comes in. So, my question is beyond the president, him or herself, how large is the circle of awareness of that gap? in the executive branch. Who's in on it? Who is abetting and supporting, or at least not whistleblowing and defecting from the deception enterprise? And related to that, I wonder whether the big change from 1940 to present, the secular trend, is so much about communications technology, but rather the expansion of the size of the executive branch with relation to defense policy and national security policy. Um, And does that make it harder to keep people inside the tent on deception? Thank you.
1: Those are, are, are both good questions. Um, I, I hate to keep doing the mutual back petting thing, but this is exactly why I've gotten so interested in Elizabeth's project, because she has convinced me that to get to the pub- going public strategy, there's a lot of stuff going on in private to kind of uh, keep the elite politics in order. I will tell you, working for a war college, that um, I have trouble knowing even what's going on at like the three star level when I work for a two-star general so I am I, I have no problem believing that actually uh, the these administrations can keep a fairly tight hold on probably the most important uh, decisions um, until they're comfortable with release I, I'm actually quite shocked at how little leaking there is and I <laughs> I don't know if this is careerism or just a sense. I, I do detect in the military, this is a good thing. The military wants to be apolitical. They don't want to be consider themselves players in a political game, even when they are. Um, but I, I, I think those are both fair questions. I, you know, I, I, I detected in the World War II case... Um, when FDR did bring in uh, uh, people from the other party into his cabinet, like Stimson and Knox, to inoculate himself, they became bequ- quite furious with him in private. They'd say, "You know, what is? Why can't this guy just lead and go to the public and say war is necessary?" You know, Stimson was uh, harshly critical, but they did not. They did not go public. And I don't know if that's old-fashioned loyalty to your... I don't know what. But, I mean, for people that live in D.C. and see this more up close than I do, I do think the most interesting part of the story at the other day is how much other elites play along with this stuff. It's quite shocking. Um, And I don't know if this is... Political cowardice, I, I, or, or just, you know, maybe something more noble. It's just remarkable. Well, I would also
2: say it's not an, it's often not an accident, right? I mean, you can, you can say, and people have said when I, when I talk about uh, this, you know, but you never see people. It's very rare that people resign in protest or, that yeah. They, um, on the other hand, when you do see a leak, first of all, when people resign in protest, it's big news. Second of all, when there is a leak, I mean, think about the leak investigations, internal White House leak investigations. They want to, you know, plug the leak, right? Uh, to me, that's a sign that presidents are expending an awful lot of effort to prevent those leaks from happening and deter them, you know, to punish leakers and detect and punish leakers. And to me, that's a sign that, that some of it probably is loyalty, uh, and and maybe self interest you, you know being a leaker can be a very or whistleblower can damage your own career but some of it is because you it gives you leverage to get things you know to to get thing get policy moved in your direction and to me so presidents are are paying costs on some level political costs opportunity costs policy costs many different kinds of costs in order to prevent those leaks from happening so i think there's interesting domestic political action happening there it's just very, very hard to detect, except in yeah. you know, historical
1: cases. I, I would just add one thing. My sense very anecdotally too is the the number of people who really want to spend a whole career here and understand that if they're seen as a a bad actor, that's gonna I mean I I think that's a problem. So ironically, again, we we tend to frown on this. But if you give people in Washington golden parachutes where they can escape to investment banking and academia and be overpaid for doing other things, uh, maybe that's a good thing because it would reduce the incentives to say, you know, I really, my lifestyle depends on kind of staying in the good graces of of certain key players who are going to be here for a while. I I have not thought about this at all, but I do think it's a very fascinating element of uh, or behind the scenes part of the story, so...
0: Yes, we are unfortunately uh, out of time, uh, so we'll have to end on that uh, brazen defense of golden parachutes. <laughs> but uh, there are, uh, we were having lunch upstairs in the uh, conference center on the second floor, uh, so those of you who didn't get to ask uh, questions can try to catch people and ask them theirs, and uh, we should all uh, thank all three of our speakers.